Father, we thank you for these servants of yours that you have called and they have answered. Lord, the talents, the gifts that you've given them naturally and supernaturally. Father, we pray for your hand to be upon them, for your favor to be upon them, that they would know your love even more deeply today. Father, we stand with them in their work um, as they strive to train leaders, to evangelize, to disciple, to translate your word. Father, we pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, you have promised that those you send, you equip. And so we thank you for equipping them for their um, responsiveness and that they're um, serving in ways um, that we can just recognize and support here from Lake County. Father, we ask for your blessing on them. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. It can be found starting on page 815 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Steve, and one of the elders here at, at Trinity. I also teach New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, and before that, we were serving as missionaries in Ethiopia for about almost 24 years, um, but it's almost like purely coincidence, we would say providence, that on this uh, Sunday in which we're thinking about global missions that... Uh, that we're not only speaking on a portion of Matthew's gospel, which we're kind of systematically working through, that deals with mission, but that uh, my number came up. If you're new here this this morning, um, uh, I just want to say welcome. Um, some things that we do, have done here or doing here may not make complete sense. I promise you there's a reason why there's a toaster up here. Um, maybe we'll hear a bit more about that in, in, uh, at the end of the service. 
This past weekend, uh, we went to South Carolina for our son's, uh, our oldest son's wedding. They had wanted to have an outdoor wedding, and we were saying, well, what about rain? And, you know, it is hurricane season in October. Um, but that was all the way back in spring. It seemed a long way off. It'll all be good. Let's, let's, let's have this outdoor wedding. Just before we arrived, Hurricane Michael arrived, and <laughs> Even though Michael had been over land for a long time, um, even as we, as we drove through South Carolina after landing in, in, uh, in Charlotte, there's flooded fields everywhere, there's downed trees, um, but if you've seen pictures of where it actually made landfall on the Florida coast in Mexico Beach, you'll know that it was much, much worse there. So by the time it got to South Carolina, there was a lot of wind and a lot of rain, nowhere near what had happened in uh, in Florida, and perhaps the the biggest impact on the on the wedding and on us was that the wedding venue called about three days before the wedding and said, "We're underwater. You can't have actually have the wedding here." So it set off a bit of a scramble, but it all went off. They are they are married. Um, but as we saw hurricane, the hurricane approaching, and as they were you know, start beginning to suggest that it was going to veer east after making landfall in Florida, we were keeping a close eye on things. Um, well before landfall, as we were watching the, the news each day, um, you know, people were saying, you know, this is going to be a life-changing event, a life-altering event. People were told, get ready. But even a fast-moving hurricane like Michael, it doesn't just happen all at once. So even you know, a number of hours or days before the hurricane actually made landfall, you know, the, the shore is being battered by these gale-force winds and, and, and rain. And then well before the hurricane actually makes landfall, there's this 10-foot storm surge and completely inundates the whole coastal area where the where the hurricane was, was landing. Well before the storm reaches, reached its apex, the storm's power was uprooting trees and lifting roofs. No one who was experiencing those things there around Mexico Beach was saying, ah, well, this isn't the hurricane. They're saying, this is the hurricane even though the, the epicenter was still well offshore. Now, probably breaking a lot of homiletical rules to use something that's very bad to illustrate something that's very good, but there's a sense in which that hurricane is very much like the arriving kingdom that we've been studying in Matthew. In advance of the kingdom, John the Baptist announces the, the imminent arrival of the kingdom. He's saying, get ready, prepare. Then Jesus bursts on the scene, and as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount and in the miracles and the exorcisms and healings that Matthew collects together in chapters 8 and 9, the powerful effects of the kingdom are being, are being felt. People are being told how the arrival of the kingdom is bringing about an entire new way of life. It's changing everything. The flood of miracles and healings and exorcisms and resuscitations that we, we read about in the two chapters we just finished read very much like a storm surge. 
And yet we sense that the epicenter of the kingdom storm is still to come. If God's kingdom has come by this stage in Matthew's gospel, we do not yet know how or when the king of that kingdom will begin to rule. To be sure, we we know who the king is. Through his teaching and through his exorcisms and his healings and his miracles, we see that he has, we've seen glimpses of his authority. But the king is not yet crowned. He's not yet enthroned. He's not yet been invested with all authority in heaven and on earth, as we'll see at the end of Matthew's gospel. That has yet to be revealed. But there's something else, because at this stage of, of Matthew, it would be difficult to say that the kingdom hasn't yet arrived. And yet Matthew has not yet told us how to enter that kingdom. The gospel at this stage is simply, that the, gossip, is simply the good news that the kingdom is arriving. It's present. But that's not, that's not the end of it. That's good news. But it's not yet clear how it's good news for us. Because it's not yet clear how we can become participants. John the Baptist comes on the scene and speaks of preparation. But how do we participate? How do we enter? See, if God's kingdom has arrived by this stage in Matthew's gospel, it's not yet clear who its citizens will be or how they will become citizens, how they will take their place at the banquet celebrating the enthronement of the kingdom's king. There's a lot that we do know by this stage in Matthew's gospel. We do know that the citizens of the kingdom will be disciples, but we don't know how they will become disciples. We do know that they will be recipients of God's mercy to, to save them from death, to cleanse them from defilement, to forgive sin, to deliver from Satan. We know that. We know that these blessings will flow to them through faith. But what Matthew hasn't made clear at this point in the story is what must happen in order to make all of those things possible. It is the tension that we as readers, I think, are meant to feel as as we've walked through Matthew to this point. It's a tension that we'll continue to feel until Matthew's description of the stunningly beautiful possibilities opened up by the arrival of the king and his kingdom gives way to the reality, to the realization, the shocking truth that in order for us to experience these amazingly beautiful possibilities, the king must hang from a cross. The king must die and rise again in order for us to be to, to experience the life-giving power of the enthroned king. And in order for that life-giving authority to extend to all peoples everywhere. Last week, Mike spoke of the, of the fact that we are invited into the kingdom by the blood of Jesus. This is obviously no ordinary king and no ordinary kingdom. People just don't wake up and discover, oh, you know, there's been an election, a change of power, new kingdom. That's not how it happens. People aren't born into this kingdom. It's not even possible to immigrate 
into this kingdom. In the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus said that with respect to this kingdom, people are like a harvest that must be gathered in. They're like lost sheep who've wandered astray, and they've, they must be gathered in. And that same imagery is repeated in the passage that we look, uh, we're looking at today. In this passage, we see that Jesus calls people into his kingdom by sending his followers in search of lost sheep. In short, he sends us out to draw them in. Now, this passage reads like a kind of tactical manual, and we are going to look at some key principles for mission. But these principles are more than just strategies and tactics. They go to the heart of what our message about this kingdom is. Well, let's look at these four principles. First of all, the first principle, restoration before incorporation. Restoration before incorporation. Jesus' words to the twelve before he sends them out have often been a source of a confusion. He tells the disciples to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, he's very pointed. Don't go outside of Israel to other peoples. Don't even go to non-Israelites like the Samaritans living inside of Israel. Go only to Israel. We read this and it feels a bit jarring, a bit ethnocentric. We'll feel it again in chapter chapter 15 when a non-Israelite woman comes to Jesus seeking help for her demonized daughter and Jesus repeats the same words that we find here. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those who are familiar with the ending of Matthew know that the, the resurrected Jesus will send his disciples to all nations, to lost sheep everywhere. And so it raises for, th- for us the question, why the particularity, the, the exclusivity here? Why the singular focus on Israel at this stage? Especially given the fact that Matthew has such a clear universal vision by the end of the gospel. There are plenty of people who have read this and taken it to be some kind of first century Israel first, Israel first policy. But I think what Matthew is doing and what Jesus was doing is somewhat, is somewhat more subtle than this. I don't think that quite captures what's going on. Already Matthew has reminded us that God's purpose to accomplish his purpose for all nations is to do that through one nation. He started his gospel by designating Jesus as the son of Abraham. And he's referred to Abraham several times since then. And the reason that Abraham is significant is because of a promise that God had made to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. See, God's purpose has always been to deal with humanity's rebellion and sin by creating himself one nation, one people, making that people holy, making that people righteous, and then incorporating all of the families into that one holy, righteous people. That was God's purpose and promise revealed to Abraham. But there's a problem. The people that God chose to be his holy people proved to be anything but holy. They rejected his covenant. They rejected his laws. 
So before the peoples of the earth could be incorporated into that people, that people had themselves to be restored. That people themselves had to be made holy, righteous. That is the mission of, the G- of Jesus, the mission that he gives to his disciples. First, Israel had to be restored. It's why he calls 12. It's a symbol of that restoration. This is now happening. Only when Israel was restored could all the nations be incorporated into it. This is what Jesus is symbolically declaring when he calls specifically 12 disciples that he was reforming, renewing, restoring Israel. Now, if all that sounds very specific to the situation of Jesus and the disciples, it was. That restriction, as we see at the end of Matthew's Gospel, was quickly lifted. But there's a very important implication, I think, for us that continues to be relevant for the way that we think about mission. You see, in sharing the good news, we're not just calling people to adopt new beliefs. We're welcoming them into community. Community that at its best is multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial. It's why the recent emergence here in our own cultural context, the recent emergence of a voting block that the media has dubbed white evangelicals, why that's such a horrible thing. Why it's so foreign to the gospel itself. Because the gospel envisions one family made up of all the families of the earth. Because what God is doing through the gospel is incorporating all families into one family. So the particularism that we read about in this, in this passage is not, is not an end. It's not a particularistic end. It's a particularist, particularistic means toward an, a universal end. A particularistic means toward the, an, an inclusive end. The end of including within one people an extraordinary diversity of all peoples. So that's the first principle. Restoration before incorporation. The second principle is proclamation with demonstration. Proclamation with demonstration. The second thing we see in in this passage is that Jesus tells his disciples that as they go, they are to do two things. They are to proclaim the good news, the gospel, about the kingdom. And they are to demonstrate its presence and its reality by healing the sick, raising the dead, restoring to community those who had physical conditions that cut them off from community, by delivering the demonized from Satan's power. In the next chapter, in chapter 11, John the Baptist sends messengers from, from prison. And, he's, and they, you know, he's, he's wondering, you know, if, if, if this is kingdom, why am I in jail? And what Jesus sends word back to John is to say, here's what's happening. The sick are being healed. The demonized are being liberated, delivered. The dead are being raised. Those who are unclean or being restored to community, cleansed. In other words, this is the evidence. The kingdom is here. And yes, I'm the king of that kingdom. Jesus 
responds by pointing to the things in his ministry that point to the reality and the presence of the kingdom. And that's what he authorizes his disciples to do here. Well, I think it's fair to say that, that many within the church around the world, we certainly saw this in Ethiopia, have sought the miraculous with very little concern about what it meant. It's simply one of the, the miracles. If you're sick, you want to be healed. Makes sense in, in a way. But the things that are listed here, I think, are carefully chosen. See, the disciples are not sent out as trained doctors or or psychologists, or financial counselors, not sent out as experts in conflict resolution. The things that they are given authority address a range of human experience outside the kingdom, a range of ordinary human experience that describe life outside the rule and reign of God, debilitating conditions that make life other than what God intended. Social and economic isolation. Spiritual domination. Most of all, death. In God's sovereignty, he still sometimes does grant those demonstrations of the presence of the kingdom in these amazing ways. In our many years of serving uh, overseas, I have to be honest, we didn't see a lot. We sometimes hear stories And many of those sorts of miraculous phenomena that were happening in Ethiopia were happening in places where the the gospel was first breaking in. But whether or not, I'm not to say that's the only time God did that. Many, many people, many of my students were involved regularly in exorcisms and other kinds of uh, of ministries of of that sort. But whether or not God chooses in his sovereignty to demonstrate the presence and the reality of the kingdom through these extraordinary manifestations of his power, we as his disciples must continue to be concerned about the ongoing demonstration of the presence and the reality of the kingdom. You see, the sorts of things that the disciples were doing through this, these extraordinary manifestations of, uh, of power are the sorts of things that all of us must do. Perhaps not in the same extraordinary ways, at least not in every every instance. But still the kingdom, the presence and the reality of the kingdom can can be demonstrated as we seek the restoration of human wholeness, the wholeness of human bodies and minds and communities. And it's why work among the poor and work among the broken must never be a kind of side ministry of a few people of the church. It must be the ministry of the whole church. It's fundamental to who we are. We are a kingdom community, and we should expect that the reality and the presence of the kingdom will be, will be here in all kinds of ways. If that happens in extraordinary ways, we praise the Lord. If it doesn't, we pursue it nevertheless. There are, I think it's important um, to be clear that what we're demonstrating in these ministries is not the gospel, but rather what the gospel achieves. The gospel, the gospel is news, and I think we see two things here. It's proclamation, good news. What do you do with news? It has to be communicated 
articulated, spoken. And at the same time, there's these, this activity, this demonstration. I think this is important because there have always been those who have seen mercy ministries and other forms of, of social engagement as the gospel itself, as a way of bringing the kingdom. But in Matthew, the kingdom is always a gift. And Matthew's very clear. The kingdom comes as the good news is proclaimed. What these other things are about is the demonstration that the kingdom is actually here. It's a demonstration of its reality and its presence. So there are powerful forces within the evangelical church today that seek to drive a wedge between the proclamation of the gospel and the practical demonstration, not of the gospel, but of what the gospel achieves. But Jesus and we as well, must always keep those things together. The third principle, the third principle, this was a little bit dif- more difficult to articulate, um, but it comes out of uh, a number of things in this passage that point to kind of financial matters. The third principle is, is this, economic integration, not professional compensation. At first glance, it appears that this material points in two very different, maybe even seemingly contradictory directions. On the one hand, it says that the disciples are not to charge for their ministry. They're not to charge for their ministry. You have received without payment, it says, the text says. So give without paying for it, verse 8. On the other hand, Jesus says the worker is worthy of his keep. And he tells them um, to go without taking even, even basic necessities with them. You're not to take money with you. You're not to take an extra pair of clothes. You're not to take extra shoes. You are to be utterly dependent on the communities to which you go. Jesus says they must never, in other words, that they must never think of ministry as a business. It must never be conceived as a kind of economic transaction in transactional terms, where the disciples are providing religious services and the people are paying for them. They're not to go from house to house, he tells them why. Because that would be to think of it as a business, always looking for a little bit better compensation package. A little bit nicer place to stay, a little softer bed, a little better food. No, if you find a place, a house that welcomes you, stay there, Jesus says. The method must match the message. The message is a message of grace. Freely you received, freely give. It's not a business deal. At the same time, Jesus acknowledges that they have practical needs that have to, be, have to be met, but even wants those needs to be met in a way that corresponds to, to what their message is achieving. The message of the kingdom is a message that achieves community. It brings about community. It's about God restoring not simply individuals, but restoring a people. A people who are marked by interdependence 
and generosity and renewed relationships. This is kingdom community. So those who bear the message of the kingdom can expect that the community that results, the community that forms as a result of their proclamation will be a community that, as long as they are part of it, will intuitively, lavishly, lovingly reach out to meet their needs. In other words, not only must the method match the message, it must also match what the message achieves. And the message achieves community. If kingdom creates community, those whom God calls to give themselves fully, the kingdom work should be economically integrated into that community where their needs are met. Now, there are a number of ways that this challenges our thinking, not least in our practice of mission and sending missionaries out with support In many cases, they're not going to places that are more economically advantaged than where they come from, but less so. Often they need to take support from the communities that send them out, still integrated into the economic, the collective economy of the communities from which they come. Perhaps I think it's important to note that, um, that this doesn't really make sense to the world. For several years, I was the, the director of SIM's work in, in Ethiopia. And during that entire time, we were under constant pressure to pay tax. Under Ethiopian law, it wasn't individuals who were responsible for paying tax, but the organization itself. And so it would go like this. I'd go into the government office, and here's what I would get. I said, you're telling me that you've lived here in Ethiopia for 20 years on the support provided by your friends and churches and family members um, back in, in the States. And I would say, that's what I'm saying. And the guy would, you know, they would respond, you're lying. No one does that. You cannot live for 20, 20 years just on gifts. And I said, we've done it. And he said, no way. He figured I had to be lying because the way things work is you do a job and someone pays you for it. Now, let me speak candidly here. Um, too often, the world's way of thinking creeps into the church. We begin to think of those whom God calls to give their time to ministry as, as employees. Pastors become providers of religious programs and services, and we are the consumers of those religious services. So, we feel no obligation to encourage them, to to thank them, to come alongside them. We simply see them as doing the job we pay them to do. We begin to treat them like professionals rather than members of our community fully integrated into the collective economy of our community. But that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this principle of economic integration. They become, as they preach the message, community forms. And the response of that community is to take in those who work on its behalf into their economy. Economic integration, not professional compensation. 
The last principle, the last principle. Um, I, had, I was working on the PowerPoint, and my, uh, <laughs> when Dawn walked by, and she saw this word, commensality, and she said, what is that? <laughs> You're not actually going to use that in your sermon, are you? Um, well, yeah, I was thinking about it. But <laughs> um, <laughs> if, and the principle is this. If not commensality, then condemnation. Now, commensality is a wonderful old word, and it, it, it stands for the simple act of eating and drinking together, of giving and receiving hospitality. And in these closing verses of the section that we're looking at this morning, Jesus again speaks of the reception of the message in community terms, in communal terms. The reception of the message is evident in the reception given to those who bear the message. Does the town or village or house return the greeting of the messengers? Do they give them a place to sleep? Do they resupply them when it's time to resume their journey? Do they, do they respond to the messengers with ordinary kindnesses of ordinary hospitality? Do they offer them community? As we say elsewhere in the gospel, such hospitality would certainly have included not only accommodation, but also, but also food and foot washing. Now, we don't that's not how we practice hospitality, but that's how, you know, in the ancient, uh, ancient Near East, that's how they practiced hospitality. It makes a kind of sense. You're often on dusty roads. You come into someone's home. Your feet are covered with dust. First thing a good host does is to wash the feet. And it's that failure to provide hospitality in the form of foot washing that seems to be in view in this symbolic action of shaking the dust off your feet. Kind of a puzzling thing, right? You, don't, you know, what does that even mean? I think what it means is the disciples are told to shake off what should have been washed off. To shake off what should have been washed off. It's part of basic hospitality. And it's, of course, for that reason, a kind of symbol of judgment, judgment for this, this failure, failure to receive the message, failure to receive the message represented in the failure to extend basic hospitality. That becomes especially clear in the final reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember the story of Genesis 19, the story of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and he receives two, he's living in Sodom, and he receives two angels. Now, you know, if you, I sometimes wonder, you know, we put this software on our kids' computers and phones, you know, sort of to, you know, to block pages. And if you had a block page, you know, a page blocker on your Bible, uh, how many pages would get blocked? Um, well, I don't know, but this would certainly be one of them. Genesis 19 would be one of those pages that got blocked. Because what happens, these angels come into to the town Lot offers the two angels hospitality. He says, come in and, you know, enjoy food. And he says, let me wash your feet. And the angel says, no, no, we'll just sleep on the, on the town square. And Lot says, that's not a good idea. This is Sodom. And so he takes them in to, and offers them hospitality. And, and, and the men of Sodom won't have it. It says both young and old 
all the men gather to Lot's house and they demand that Lot hang over, hand over these two angels so they can gang rape them. It's a horrible, horrible story. And that night, that night, Jesus, or the book of Genesis says, God rained down burning sulfur and wiped those cities from the face of the earth. What Jesus says here then is very, very troubling against that backdrop. He says that it will seem as though Sodom and Gomorrah got off lightly compared to the judgment that is going to come on those cities who refuse to offer hospitality to those who bear the message of the kingdom. That's how momentous this message is. It's life-altering. It's like the, the citizens of Mexico Beach hearing the the news that this hurricane is coming and ignoring it, ignoring it, are on their own heads. Throughout the Arabic-speaking world and many other countries where Semitic languages are spoken, including Ethiopia where we served, you often hear, you know, greetings, salam. Salam aliakum is very, very typical, particular, particularly in Muslim societies. I probably just butchered the pronunciation. I'm sorry. Um, but as, he, as Jesus would have said, it's, uh, you know, someone who spoke an Aramaic language, probably something like, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem. You could say that, Shalom Aleichem. Go ahead, try it, you can try it. Shalom Aleichem. And the response is, if I say to you, Shalom Aleichem, you say in return, you say in return, Aleichem Shalom. Aleichem Shalom. So it's just an ordinary exchange of greetings, but it means peace. And in this context, the peace of the kingdom, it evokes very, very powerful notions from, uh, from the Old Testament. This is what we hold out in the gospel. We hold out peace. It's more than a passing greeting, but the promise of a world put right. A promise of a world put right. The prospect of righteousness and restored relationships through the blood of Christ. That's what we offer. When the shalom takes a concrete social form, it looks like hospitality. Most of all, the offer of hospitality to strangers. That's what we hold out in the gospel. This is why giving and receiving hospitality, commensality, so rich with gospel meaning because community represents what the gospel offers. The welcome of God and the welcome of God's welcome. Well, we began this morning with a focus on sending. Jesus sending his disciples in search of lost sheep. But that sending out, sending out, includes within it another dynamic. And that dynamic is one of drawing in. The dynamic of drawing in and being drawn in. In our proclamation of the gospel, we're inviting people in, into kingdom, into community. Into a community that reeks of grace, into a place where where God's shalom has been restored, where people from every nation, race, Every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity are welcomed into the one people, restored to holiness and to new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom's king. 
It's a community where, where ordinary meals are heavy with extraordinary meaning. It's a community where our experience of what the gospel achieves leads us to acts of mercy and compassion to the broken. A community where those who minister to us are not regarded as as paid professionals who simply provide religious programs to consumers, but as brothers and sisters worthy of loving support, fully integrated into the economy we all share as one community. I'm sure you've seen those Better Together Facebook commercials. They, uh, they issued those, uh, those ads as a kind of apology for, I say a kind of apology, um, for, you know, for failing to pr- protect users' you know, private information, allowing its users to be exposed to a kind of constant stream of, of misinformation. And the ads are, are very interesting. They, they kind of tap into um, the fundamental human longing for the sort of thing that we've been talking about this morning, for meaningful relationships, that fundamental human longing for vibrant community. And show, uh, th- those ads show you know, sort of these happy people physically present with one another, fully engaged with one another, people living life with one another, And the ads tell us that Facebook makes us feel a little less alone and make us feel a little little closer. But perhaps the more typical image that comes to mind is the image of people sitting together, each completely unaware of the other's presence, thumbing through their feed. In other words, despite the the extraordinary capacity of technology to to facilitate connection across distance, we've never felt more distant from one another, more isolated, more alone. Too often, we've presented the gospel on these individualistic terms as an individualistic transaction. Here, take your forgiveness and go. Well, as Jesus sends us out, he sends us into a world, into a culture aching for what the gospel uniquely creates. A community of people forgiven and restored to holiness and and right relationships through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He sends us together scattered sheep. He sends us out to draw them in sends us out to draw them in. Let's close with prayer. Father, these words challenge us because we all have, in one degree or another, embraced the social fragmentation that is part of our culture. But the deepest parts of us long for this kind of community, even as we resist it. We pray that we would hear the gospel and not just hear the gospel, that we would hear what the gospel achieves. That it would be reflected in our own practices as, as a community. As we send, send um, people to the ends of the earth, as we ourselves are sent even across the street,
pray that we would um, be clear about what the gospel achieves. We would be clear that through the death and resurrection, we find this extraordinary community. We pray these things in Jesus' name.